So we're going to go to our time. We're going to read um, from Ephesians this morning is our uh, passage. So if you're able, would you please stand with me as we read the word? The verse comes from Ephesians 4, uh, verses 1 through 6. It says this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is God's word, it is true, and it is given to us out of his love. You may be seated. All right. Hey, good morning. I'll add to Don's welcome this morning. Uh, my name's Chad. I am the discipleship pastor here. So um, if you are interested in a, one of our DCs or discipleship collectives, I would love to talk to you about that or introduce you to one that's close to you or convenient to you. Um, this week, we are kind of, this is kind of deceiving because we're not actually going to be in the book of John. We're actually taking a break from John. We've been working through John. Uh, but for this week and next week, we're taking a little bit of a break in John. I'm going to preach today out of Ephesians chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles, you can open to Ephesians 3. Um, and then next week, Colbert will be back and he will be uh, bringing a message, kind of a vision message for the new year. And then we'll jump back in John um, and be ready to be able to finish that um, this next year. So I'm thankful um, for the book of Ephesians. It's one of my favorite books of the New Testament. Um, Ephesians is this letter uh, written by the Apostle Paul to the church. And what's interesting about that is that the church of Ephesus, it seems to be this church that was seeming to be doing okay. Like, it, it, this book isn't like Paul's letter to the Corinthians, where he's writing to try to fix some things, or there is some, some problems going on. In the book of Ephesians, the, the church actually seems to be doing okay. In fact, we know this because John, the, the, the writer of the book that we've been in, he also wrote the book of Revelation. And in Re Revelation, chapter 2 verse 2 Paul says this or sorry John says this about the church at Ephesus he says I know of your works your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary this is a church who, as we look at it, it's been pretty consistent with its theology. It's been pretty consistent in their knowledge of the truth. They've been willing and able to, 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 um, push out the false teaching and, and heresy and, and stuff that maybe some of the other churches came in contact with. Which kind of then pushes us as we jump into the book of Ephesians, and, and I say that because I'm preaching one message right in the middle of the book, so I don't expect you to know everything about Ephesians, but as we come into it, I, I, I want to ask the question of, what is the purpose of this letter? And, and that question, it could be a little bit difficult from time to time, because as I've been studying for this through the book of Ephesians, um, in my study, I've read at least 15 different opinions on what is the purpose of the book of Ephesians. 
But what we can deduce is that Paul is using some key themes, or he, he uses repetition a lot of times, and you begin to pick up on these repetitions that point us to, to a main point he's trying to make. And so for the sake of time this morning, I want to just share with you two of those words or two themes that he seems to repeat in the book of Ephesians. The first one is the idea of love. That idea of love outside of um, 1 Corinthians, he uses that word over 20 times in this little short book. And so we know he's, he's emphasizing this idea of love. And then secondly, the other word or the other concept that he, he really presses into is the concept of unity. And so the reason I, I, I share this and, and I want to be able to think through this and develop it is because the section we're going to look at this morning, we're going to look at the end of chapter 3, and it's a transition statement, it's a transition portion of Ephesians. And in chapter, um, in, in chapter 3, Paul will transition the letter, and in chapter 4, verse 1, where Don just read, in that section he's going to, to, to point us in the direction of what we should be doing more of like the actions. Paul does this in his letters in, in the book of Romans. If you've ever read or studied through the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 1 through 11, he spends a lot of time talking about theology and doctrine and, and talking about salvation. And then he gets to chapter 12 and you, get, you come to this transition where, where he begins to focus not so much about the theology, but how you apply that theology, how it applies to your life, and how you should live. And that's what we're going to today. The same thing is happening here in Ephesians. But the passage I want to share with you this morning is going to give us the basis of why we should live, or the basis whereby our Christian living should, should come from. And we find that really in the rest of, the, of Ephesians chapter 4, verse 6. So if you're ready for this this morning, I'm actually going to send you home with some homework. Go home and read Ephesians 4 through 6 and see how do you apply what we're going to talk about this morning. And so I believe that the purpose of the book of Ephesians is to call the church at Ephesus to be unified in the love of Christ. And this morning, I know there's a typo on the bulletin. We're not in chapter 4. We're actually going to be in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. And so I'm going to pray, and we're going to dive into this this morning. So would you pray with me? Father, I pray this morning that as we look at your word, your word would speak to us. Lord, allow it not to be my words, Allow it to be um, a vision of your spirit working through these to point us to who we are in Christ. And Lord, that through this we would walk away with a better understanding not only of this book, but of areas in our life that we need to change and we need to see you at work in. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So this morning, in, if you have one of the bulletins, there's four questions in there. And really what I want to do with you this morning is that as we walk through the text, I'm going to use these four simple um, questions, these four, um, this, this simple paradigm of four questions to ask ourselves as we walk through the text. Now, I have to say that these questions aren't necessarily original with me. Um, I got them from my friend Jeff Vanderstelt. 
Um, but these four questions, they're going to be up on the screen. And I hope, if you can't see it, I'm explaining it. I'll explain it to you a bit. But this is something that I believe is a discipleship tool. And hopefully, not only can you use it this morning to walk our, ourselves through the text, but I want it to be something that maybe you would think about as you live in your life. Because the questions, they actually start from the bottom. And, you, and for those who are listening online or can't see this, it's a picture of a tree. And the questions at the bottom begin, we're going to start by talking, who is God? And we're going to work our way up. What does God do? Who are we? And what do we do? Now, the reason why this is a, a discipleship tool is that if you are like me, or you've been a Christian for a while, we're always focused on that very top question, what do we do? We have sin, and, and, and we work to change our actions, right? It's like, I, I, I lie, so I need to stop lying. Or I have a problem with um, pornography, and I need to just stop that. Or I have a problem yelling or being angry. And we're always focused on this idea of what do we do. And the reason I, I call this the tree chart, um, I, I, the, the last question, what we do, is at the very top, and it's, it's kind of like a tree, that a tree produces fruit, and that's what you see, and that's kind of like your action that you do. And here's the problem is, when a tree produces bad fruit, you could pick that fruit off of the tree. But if the tree is sick, if it has problems down in its roots, it's going to continue to produce bad fruits. And so I have a problem when we're always focused on our actions— and we don't get down to the root of some of the problems that our actions come from our view of our identity, who we are. They come from our theology, who we believe God is and what we believe God does. And so this morning, we're going to use these questions. We're going to step, them, we're going to step through the text with them. But my goal is that we'll come back to this chart. We'll fill it out. We'll come back to it at the end. And hopefully, there'll be some tools that you could take home with you for you to be able to really think through our, your actions as, as not being the key thing that you should be focusing on, but really digging into who we believe God is and what identity we believe he has given us. So if you would, let's look into the text this morning. We're going to jump into Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. If you don't have a Bible, there are table Bibles, and I didn't look at the page number. 977 is the page number for the table Bibles. You are free to take those. Those are free to you if you want to take one home. If your Bible, you need a new Bible this year, just take one of these black ones on the tables. Um, but I want to make sure that you're seeing the Word yourself. I, I could talk to you about it, but it's more important that the Word speaks to you, not me. So let's look into the Word. We're in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14, and it says this. He begins, For this reason I bow my knee before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Now something kind of funny happens here in this text. It starts out with four words that are actually identical to four other words at the beginning of chapter 3. So if you look, look in your text from chapter 14, you'll see in chapter, or chapter 3, 14, if you look at 3, 1, you see those same exact words. In Ephesians 3, 1, he says this, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you um, Gentiles. And then you notice there's this little line there. This, this long dash is technically called an M dash, and it's used to denote a break in a sentence that will, that will, in fact, be some sort of parenthetical phrase. And so here's what's happening. In 3.1, Paul is actually getting ready to pray. 
And as he's getting ready to pray, it's almost as if he, he, he has like the second thought. Wait, and, and you have this dash here that denotes like, hold on a sec. I want to make sure before I get to my prayer that you understand something. It's as if he's saying, he, he, he's saying, because then he jumps back into it in, in verse 14. But it's kind of like he needs one more try to clarify what he's been trying to say to them all along. And so in 3.14, these repeated words are another way of him saying, okay, I'm ready to get back to what I was originally starting to say in 3.1. Which becomes helpful for us in answering that first question because if we look to the question that we began with, who is God, I believe it's right here in our text, and, and the answer that I have to answer that is who is God? God he is the Father of all people. And you may say, well, well, that seems just obvious, right? Like, God is the father of all people. But it's not as obvious because, in fact, it's actually what Paul has been emphasizing here. He's trying to get their attention to that God is not just the father, but he's the father of all people. Because remember, as we began talking earlier, we said that one of the themes in the book of Ephesians is this idea of unity or, or this unifying of the church in the love of Christ. And so it's important that, it's important that God is not just God the Father, but He is the Father of all people. Because if we look back, Paul has been emphasizing this point. You could go back to Ephesians 2, 17 through 18. He says this, and He came and He preached peace. To you who were far off, speaking towards the Gentiles, and peace to you who were near, speaking to the Jews. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. See, it's not as obvious as it should be that God is the Father of all people. Because if you were part of this original audience, there was this, there was this schism, there was this separation of Jews and Gentiles. And Paul is making quite sure that the church understands that God is the Father of all. And so what he's been emphasizing in chapter 2 and in chapter 3 is that we are all far from God, Jews and Gentiles, and both in need of the grace of God and have been brought near to God in Jesus so that through Jesus we have been allowed access to the Father in one spirit. He is the Father of all people. And in fact, if you look in, in verse 6 in your text here, he says this, This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. And so as we look at this first question, I don't want us to just glance over it to say theologically, yeah, we all know God is Father, but who God is, he is he is the father of all people. And then secondly, we ask ourselves the second question, what does God do? We've already seen that he brings those who were far off, we, we read in, verse, in chapter 2, he brings those who are far off near to him, but he doesn't just do that. He doesn't just bring those who are far off near to him, but look at verse 16, it says this, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. The text here tells us what God does. And what God does is he strengthens us with power and dwells in us. And so if we're answering that question, I, I drew in that other thought from chapter 2, that what God does as we answer the question is God draws us near, he strengthens us, and he dwells in us. 
And these three points of what God does for us, they cannot be ignored. And here's the problem. We read the text sometimes, and we're always reading the text about what it says about me. And and we overlook the fact that what it says about God actually points us to what it means for me. God draws us near. God strengthens us. God dwells in us. These are important. In fact, last year, we celebrated the, the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, and part of that, part of, part of this celebration of the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, was that for a while there was a schism away from the teachings of the Catholic Church, and that Martin Luther, on October 31st, 1517, he, he, he started or, or, or was part of this, this, this separation from the church. And a lot of things came from the Reformation, but myself, as a former Catholic... And now, a sympathetic Reformation thinker, I find what Paul says here in this text highly important to the cause of the Reformation. And it is this, that God is no longer afar off from his people, but he has brought us near. That was part of the problem with the Reformation, you see, because the, the, the church seemed to always hold the keys that the church was near to God, and if you wanted to become near to God, you had to go to the church or to the priest or to the pope. And what the Reformation did is it, it, it started to enact these very verses here, that God has drawn you near to himself personally. And so Luther and Calvin and Knox and Zwingli and other reformers, they knew that it wasn't the church that drew us near to God, but it was the Spirit who drew us near to God on the merits of Jesus' work on the cross. And that is the message that Paul has been preaching through the book of Ephesians. So don't miss this point this morning. God draws us near. He strengthens us. He dwells in us. And it's not because you paid some money to a priest. It's not because you, because of all your good works, but this is because of, by God's grace, through faith, that we have been saved. And I love this. Because in chapter 1 of Ephesians, I told you, like, I love Ephesians. We could just stay in Ephesians now all morning, all day. But I love Ephesians because he, he already mentions this in chapter 1 of Ephesians because he prays at the end of chapter 1. In Ephesians chapter 1 is another one of Paul's prayers. And in that prayer, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22, he says this. He says, and he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who filled all in all. Now here's what I love about this. Jesus now sits at the right hand of God and he rules and reigns. And not only does he rule and reign, but but the scripture says he puts all things under his feet, meaning that he has complete sovereign rule that that includes the evil, even evil is under his foot. No longer does Satan, sin, and death have a free reign over the dominion, but Jesus has inaugurated his reign in the institution of his new kingdom. And what these verses tell us at the end of Ephesians chapter 1 is this. These verses tell us that under Christ's new reign, Jesus reigns as the head, but if you look, who is part of the body? The church. The church. We are. The church is the body of Christ. 
And this becomes important as we get to the last question, what do we do? But I want us this morning to, to bring this into this thought into our mind that what God does is he draws us near, he strengthens us, he dwells in us, but that in that dwelling, it is mutual. He dwells in us, but there seems to be that we are dwelling in him as the church. Now here's why this is important. Because if he dwells in us and we dwell in him as his body, this mutual dwelling of with, within one another is what we call intimacy. This intimacy is important to who we are as God's people. We are connected to the very God of heaven. And this intimacy leads us to understand, then, what is our identity? What is our identity? Which brings us to that third question. This question is the identity question. Who am I? And this is a big one. Who am I? Look at verse 17. Verse 17, it says, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Here Paul is saying, I want you to know, I want you to comprehend in your minds and together with the entire church that you are intimate with God, but in this way, you are well-loved sons and daughters of the Father. You are well-loved sons and daughters of the Father. And this my friends, this needs to be our identity. This is key right here. You are no longer identified by your past sin. You are no longer identified by your nationality. You are no longer identified by your wealth or your job or you're not even identified by your knowledge of God. You are identified as well-loved sons and daughters of the Father. And if God is the father of all people who draws near and strengthens us and dwells in us, then we have to know that we are well-loved sons and daughters of the father. And here's the problem. This is hard to believe. It's hard for some of us to believe this. And I'm going to tell you two things why. Number one, I believe it's hard to believe because, because of our sin. We see our horrible sin, and sometimes it's hard for us to believe that God would love us still. I think secondly, it's hard to believe, and I, and I want to just identify with some of us, because to think that we are well-loved sons and daughters, for some of you, that's hard to believe, because maybe even your background, like you ha didn't have the family that other people had, or you, you didn't have a mom or a dad who loved you, so you don't even know how to identify with what it means to be a well-loved son, that no matter what you did, you are still loved that your actions didn't matter, that your mom and your dad 
still loved you. And I know that some of us struggle with that. It's difficult. But if you look here, what we find is this is in the midst of Paul's prayer. He's saying, despite where you come from, I pray now that you grow in your understanding and comprehension of the love of Christ. He's not saying, go and just meditate on the fact that you are loved. He's saying, I pray that the Father can change your view, that the Father would change your heart, that the, that the Father would change your identity so that you would know whether you've ever experienced love in your life, that you would know and understand what the love of God is. And here's why. Notice the words he uses here. He says that you would know the breadth and the length and the height and the depth. Like he, he's talking about the love of God being this gigantic chasm that you cannot even comprehend. So uh, our family, we love national parks. And one of our favorite national parks is the Black Canyon of the Gunnison. So here's, here's a picture of our family. And, and this is actually a really good picture. You notice, like, one of our kids is mad. We don't hide that. Like, when you have one kid, you try to get them to smile. When you have two kids, you kind of wrestle with that. Once you have, like, over three kids, you stop caring whether any of them even smile at all, okay? <laughs> in fact, we stop caring even if all five are even in the picture sometimes. We're like, whatever. So this is us. This is real life. This was a year ago at the Black Canyon. Um, or as Colbert would say, like one of my many must, I, I change my facial hair and, and hairstyles all the time. So this is one of the looks of Chad. But I bring this up because this incredible, this is an incredible place if you've not been there. It's actually deeper than the Grand Canyon. The, the Black Canyon. I think there's another picture of, of what it looks like in this, in this huge chasm here. It's not as wide as the Grand Canyon, but our family's, um, what we believe is that it's prettier than the Grand Canyon. It's deeper. We love it a little bit more. It's also in Colorado. But one of the running jokes we have in our family, we actually joke my wife all the time because when you go there, there's like fences all over, but my wife's like always so paranoid that one of our kids is going to fall over into the canyon. And, and if you, my wife has all these stories that she makes up, I think, about like, you know, we know there was this kid that fell into the canyon just last week when she doesn't know. Like, she just makes that up to scare the kids, I think. But why, why, you, you get so nervous around it, and even I, like, there's a railing there, but you still get that feeling, like, this anxious feeling, even as you come to the edge, because the cat, like, it's so huge, and it's so deep, like, you're gonna fall into it. And I share that just because of the grandness of this place. That that's what Paul is, is, is saying in this text here, Right? Do you know the grandness of the love of God? Do you know how much God loves you? If you did, you wouldn't struggle to say, my sin is too big. And so he prays. He prays over this church that they would know the love of Christ. And his prayer wasn't that they would just know it, but that they would grow into their comprehension of how big God's love is. You are well loved. Can you, would you say that with me? I am well loved. 
You are well-loved. Church, I want you to know this because I know even this morning I'm struggling with that idea and I know you are struggling with that idea that you are well-loved. You are well-loved. You are well-loved. Like I can't say it enough. You are well-loved in Christ. And I want, and, and just as Paul, we're going to end in a little bit, but I want to pray that over you that you would know that you are well-loved. Life is hard and it makes us forget we are well-loved. Which brings me then to my last point. What do we do? And here's, I'm going to admit to you this morning. I admit to you this morning that the answer to the last question is vague. I admit to you that it's vague and I know that it's vague. But when we ask the question, what do we do? I believe what we do is that we live lives that are rooted and grounded in the love of Christ. And I know, that's vague, right? You leave here and you're like, yeah, let's go live lives rooted and grounded in the love of Christ. And that means nothing, kind of. I mean, we need more. Like, we love it when, when the scripture tells us, like, what you need to do is go kill three birds and, 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 and spill the blood somewhere. We love, like, those, not that we love to spill blood, but we love the idea of God telling us specifically, like, you need to do one, two, and three. And here, I'm not giving you one, two, and three. I'm saying you need to go and live lives like you're rooted and grounded in the love of Christ. And here's why it's vague. Because Paul then spends chapters 4, 5, and 6 telling you what that looks like. The 1, 2, and 3 are actually in, in chapters 4, 5, and 6. Because if it, it, this, this vagueness is the fact that the application then, he's going to go on and he's going to spend these three chapters specifically telling you how to live out your lives rooted and grounded in the love of Christ. And what I can encourage you in is that if you know that you're a well-loved son and daughter, you aren't going to feel threatened when another well-loved son and daughter has a different gift or a different talent than you have. If you know that you're well-loved, that you will no longer need to hide your sin, but you will be able to speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are all members of one another, is what he says. If we know that we are well-loved, we can um, be angry without sin. If we know that we are well-loved, that we will let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from us. That we can walk in love, that we can put away sexual immorality, that we can stop stealing, that we can submit to husbands and wives, that we can obey our parents that we can stand face to face in the battle with the evil one. Why? Because we know we are well loved. That's what he says. And it's not because I'm an American or a man or I have a degree or, or, or have any other things that I could put on me. Those things mean nothing. But that we would walk away knowing we are well loved sons and daughters of God. God has drawn us near to himself. He has empowered us and he dwells in us because he is the father of all people. So I want to draw us back to that tree chart and I actually filled it out for you, the answers of what we've been talking through. And what I want us to begin to think through, like this is something I want us to draw into our everyday life. That, that when we're struggling with the fruit on the tree, what I want us to do is go down deeper. Like we need to go into the question and ask, when I'm struggling with sin, what is my real identity that I'm living out of? So if I'm struggling with anxiety, 
What do I believe about myself? I'm worried about all the situation around me. Well, my identity may not be that I'm a well-loved son, but my identity may actually be that I am the one God has put to control all things. And what does that say? And if we work our way downwards, we begin to say, okay, if, our, if I'm supposed to control all things, what does it tell me? What do I actually believe that God did for me? Well, he's there to kind of hold the world in order, but he's not really there for me. So then we move to the next question, who is God? And if I believe that God hasn't done anything for me, what does it say that I actually believe about God? Well, he's kind of powerless, And here's where we want to start with our problem. I don't need to just tell myself, stop worrying. I need to dig down deep and begin to say, no, I need to change my view of who I believe God is. And the reality is, I know God is powerful. And so so my repentance starts here. Not my actions. My repentance starts on my view of God. God, forgive me for believing you are powerless, but you are truly powerful. Allow your spirit to allow me to believe this. Okay, then I move to the next question. God, what does God do? God, you're powerful. That means you control and you work at all things. So God, help me to believe that you are a powerful God who controls and and does much more than I can ever do. And then it moves us to who we are. We are simply servants of the king. And as servants, we know the king will protect us. We know the king is in control. So therefore, it moves us out. And when I get to the end, if I'm still living in anxiety, I really haven't believed the things I've been working through. I should leave saying, God, you are powerful, and all I could do is rest in you because of, your, of the way you have trained me to believe. And so I want this to be a tool that you could take with you. It's something that I, I, I'm offering a tool. It's going to be one of the things I teach our DC leaders. It's something that you could be working together with in groups. But I, I just wanted it to be something that we're always so focused on what we do and we're trying to change what we do, what we do. But it has to flow out of our identity. Because if the tree has rotten roots, it's going to still produce rotten fruit. All right, let's finish this up. I think I've already gone long. Let's end this in, in verse 20. He says this. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now here we come to the very end, and in this doxology, he begins to spell out for us um, this thought, because of the power at work in us, as well-loved sons and daughters of the Father, we as the church will be a display of God's glory in the creation through all generations forever and ever in more abundant ways than we can ever ask or think. This is what he's saying. Like He's saying, if you believe these things, God will be able to do what God does. I believe it's John Piper who says, the church is the theater of God's glory. And here's the point. The only way we could truly be actors in God's play is if we live out of the intended roles that he has given us. Like, if you want to be used by the Lord, you need to play the role he has intended for you. And the role he has intended for you is not the king. It's the well-loved son. It's the well-loved daughter of the king. So this morning, if we would do that, 
Paul leaves us with this expectation at the very end that if we would consider God the great father of all people and we would just live out of our theology, at the end, I love this, this, this doxology he comes to. What does God do? He's going to do far more than you could ever imagine. I love that. He says, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we can ever think. Why? Because he's God. So let me just call you to this this morning. Call you to let God be God and you be who you are supposed to be. That you are well-loved sons and daughters of the king. And if you believe this, there's going to be actions that change in your life. And the first one's even going to be when we come to the communion table. That we come to God, if you come to God as a well-loved son and daughter, you come with a sense of boldness because you are coming to your family, right? Like when I come to my family's Thanksgiving or Christmas meal, I don't come sheepishly. I come with boldness because I know I'm loved there. I know it's a place of comfort there. So I want to call you to that. And even this year, as you begin to, to contemplate your, your direction with, with resolutions and all those sort of things, make this part of one that every day I would wake up reminding myself I'm well-loved son or daughter of the king, and I can live out of that identity this year. Would you pray with me? God, thank you. Thank you for your word that continues to point us to truth. We're so easily led astray to believe that our identity is dad or mom. We, we allow our identity to be our jobs or allow it to be our income. And God, this morning, I would just call and ask that your spirit would work in our hearts and remind us that our greatest identity is who you call us, sons and daughters. And that today, if any are struggling knowing the love of God, that your spirit would work in them. And Lord, this year that our actions would change, not because we tried harder or worked harder, but our actions would change because we grew in our intimacy with Christ. That your spirit truly worked in us. And that in your working in us, that we do different things. Because we no longer need to pretend that we're something else. We no longer need to hide our sin we no longer need to search out for a mom and dad who will love us, but we know that the scripture tells us you love us more than we can ever imagine. And so today, Lord, would you change our hearts to know you more? For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, if you've been at Missio or this is your first time, you know we sit around tables for a reason. We sit to be able to have a little bit of time to ask a few questions to one another and have discussion. There's no pressure for you to speak up, but, um, but, and there's no pressure for you to even have the right answer, so we just invite you into that. But this morning, I want us to be able to focus on these three questions. What false identities do we take on that distract us from seeing that we are well-loved sons and daughters? Number two, what actions do these false identities create in our lives? 
And number three, how can we keep our focus on God's intended purpose for our lives? I'm going to give you about five to ten minutes to be able to discuss that at your tables, and then we'll come back together in just a minute. All right. Well, we've, we've come to the time of our worship service when we have an opportunity to respond. Um, the, the practice of communion is a, worship, is, a, is a part of our worshipful response to what we've sung, what we've heard. Um, and, and so we do this each week uh, just to continue as this pattern and this habit to remember um, the things we've heard this morning about what Christ has done for us. Um, last week, I hope you all had a wonderful uh, holiday on Tuesday, celebrating the birth of Christ. When we celebrate Christmas, we're celebrating the appearing of Jesus, Jesus, incarnate, or God incarnate. Um, um, some of you may have turned your attentions this week to what has become the great American tradition of New Year's resolutions. We start to make resolutions. In fact, we were, uh, we were traveling over Christmas and got home on Friday, and when I got the mail, I think I had four or five uh, flyers from local health clubs that were waiving their introductory fee. Um, I didn't take it personally. I, it was healthy, healthy criticism, I, I'll say. Um, but we do. We can get into that cycle. I, I think it goes exactly with what Chad, we, we can start thinking, what do I have to do? What do I have to, what do I have to accomplish now um, this year? And it's a complicated question because there probably are some things that we do need to do. There are some commitments that we do need to make. The fact that it's become a habit at New Year, I guess, is as we turn the calendar, it, it helps us think about that a little more deliberately. So I don't want to keep you from making those resolutions, but I do want to add one. And, and it's not something to do, but I hope that one of your resolutions this year can be that as we come to this time, as we come to this weekly uh, commemoration, we come to this time where we come to the, the table to celebrate communion, that you would really take this time to reflect on not what you can accomplish, but what on, Christ, on what Christ has accomplished for you through his life and his death and his resurrection. The communion table helps tangibly remind us that Jesus really suffered and he really died and that he did that to accomplish much for us, to replace our heart, to give us a new identity. This is what Paul says to Titus in, in Titus 3. It says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. So Paul says, that's, but he says, that's who we once were. But he says this, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, what we celebrated at Christmas, when the, good, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That is who we are. We're sons and daughters of the King. When we come to the table, we don't remember what we bring to it. We don't remember what we do. 
we remember what he's done for us. And we remember who we are because of him. So if you're a believer in Christ, if you trust him uh, to pay the penalty for your sins, if you trust him uh, that he is your loving father, then come to the table. Take the bread. Remember that his body was broken. Take the cup. Remember that his blood was shed for you. There's stations at all four corners. I think there's a gluten-free option available. Come now and remember who you are in Christ.